folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I want to take another look at this uh, Trump phenomena. I know I've done a lot of episodes on Trump. I was looking back, and it's uh, 20, I think, was the final number of episodes with Trump in the title. But I haven't done any this season, and uh, I've been getting some uh, requests from people. Uh, so what do you think of this? What do you think of that tweet? What, what, what do you think is going on here? We're two years in, the midterms are over. And so let's take a look. Okay, let me share a letter that I got from one of my listeners, Mike, that kind of inspired me here. He says, hey, Jeff, I came to your podcast about nine months ago at a time when I was in deep confusion and a measure of anger over the manifestation of Trump and his followers. Your podcast was a true blessing in helping to alleviate much of what I was experiencing. No, I have certainly not, quote, transcended my dislike of this Trump phenomena, and even typing his name generates a thin shiver of ickiness in me. But listening to your podcasts addressing the Trump movement has helped to create so much more spaciousness in my thinking and feeling around it. And thank you, Mike. And if this is the case, then I am so happy because this is literally what I'm trying to do. Um, and, you know, facilitate the evolution of consciousness and culture um, and notice where it's happening under its own power. And one of the ways that we can look at the development of consciousness, the evolution of consciousness, it's the process of enlarging the circle and sphere of what we're able to see and relate to. And that feels like spaciousness. And one of the things I will say relative to Trump is that Trump has enabled us to see a lot more than we did, I think, what was 30 months ago, when he and Melania came down the escalator in Trump Tower. And even the, the thought of that, there's part of me that just wants to like puke when I think of that. I, I love what uh, Mike wrote about, even typing his name generates a thin shiver of ickiness in me. And we can actually start our integral analysis right there. and. Um, and notice that for many of us, uh, I, I don't assume everybody in the audience, and I get letters from uh, Trump supporters as well. Um, but for many of us, there is just a repulsion. And, um, you know, I, I, I often think when I, when I get to be too sympathetic with, for Trump or he just strikes me as being a character, or I'm, you know, liking something that he said, or whatever. I, you know, my the, 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 my my tribal liberal part, uh, my liberal Jeff is quick to stop that kind of a thing. I, I noticed that. Here's an example of why I have to keep my guard up. It's Trump at a press conference a week or so ago, being all likable and self-aware. I can honestly say I never had a beer in my life, okay? Right. It's one of my only good traits. I don't drink. <laughs> Whenever they're looking for something good, I say, I never had a glass of alcohol. I've never had alcohol. I've just, you know, for whatever reason. 
Can you imagine if I had what a mess I'd be? Would I be the, I'd be the world's worst. Oh, that's kind of disarming. But no, wait, it's a trap. Uh, and there are a couple things that I can rely on that are the, the pillars of my Trump repulsion, one of which is birtherism. I will never forgive him for birtherism. I don't want to forgive him for birtherism. That will be in another life or two. The child separation policy, I feel the same way about that. It, I don't want to forgive him for that. And, you know, the bullying and bragging, I'm a little more ambivalent about. I can see the sort of uh, skillful means of that in a way, in a way that I didn't before. But at any rate, to go back to the integral analysis, we just want to notice what our response to Trump is. And to notice that whatever it is, it says as much about us as it does about him. That's all. You know, that's all. And so I want to notice that, you know, what is it about me or can I see that part of me who is repulsed? And can I see that part of me from a bigger perspective? So where, where I can see it instead of be it. And that is itself a bringing on of spaciousness. So there's that. The second thing that an integral analysis tells us is that evolution, while beautiful, it created this whole thing, this whole living thing on this planet. Astonishing. Uh, so it's beautiful, but it's not pretty in its means. And that disruption, if we look at the evolution of consciousness, culture, and, you know, the living biosphere, that disruption is evolutionarily potent, provided <laughs> one survives it. Actually, that's not even true. It's potent whether or not one survives it. But we do want to survive it, and I actually think we will survive this Trump phenomena and be better for it, be bigger, and to understand more, and have more online, and to be in a way more alive for that. So, you know, that's a little preview of where I'm going to go here. So anyway, when I think back on the Daily Evolver Trump history, there are two or three big moves. One was back when I was sure Hillary was going to win, back during the campaign. And I would often talk about how, you know, I know Hillary's going to win and thank God Hillary's going to win, but damn, I'd love to run this Trump experiment. I'd just like to see where this would go. Well, so we get to run the Trump experiment as of two years ago. And um, as I said, it escaped the lab. But, um, you know, here we are now two years later and we know more. Uh, we have an idea of, um, you know, the shape of this man and, and, and this movement and this presidency. And we can see that Trump is, of course, unique. Uh, but also, I say historic. I, I think he will go down in history as a very consequential president. Not necessarily for his policies, although we'll see about that. Uh, but for making clear that the modern world was being run by people with a worldview, the modern worldview, more or less, 
And they didn't realize that it was a worldview. It, they, they thought it was the way the world was. It was like they didn't have the worldview, the worldview had them. And that's true of worldviews, particularly in the first tier, for those of you who know integral jargon. But I'm one of those people, you know. I was just on board for the modern center left, little center right, corporate globalist uh, agenda and worldview. And what Trump has shown is that the hegemony of that worldview was needing to be challenged. Um, and there was a whole bunch of people who hadn't signed on for it. And what's remarkable is that he did it sui generis. That is, he generated it himself. He came out of his own karmic stream. There was no political operative of any reputation who would have advised him not to raise his hand in the first Republican debate when they were asked if they would support the eventual nominee of the party. The 12 said yes, he said no. Or to diss John McCain about his war hero captivity, or a Gold Star family, or more, most recently, um, uh, Commander McRaven, who went in and got bin Laden, and the Obama judges, and his, this weekend his um, spat with John Roberts, the chief, chief justice, about the nature of the judicial system, and there being Obama judges and, and, and Trump judges. And, you know, we can even feel, as we talk about this, the sort of where Trump is coming from a lower stage of development. And we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, he came on the scene. He's no organization to speak of, spent relatively little money, and he became the president of the United States. And he has this one big idea that he just feels in every cell of his body. And that is, is that America is being played for a fool. You know? And that, that just is intolerable. And that everybody's out to get us and him. That's the way he ran his business and his career too. And what I've realized, and I think many of us have, is the power of that. Gosh, I thought we were beyond that. Uh, but no, uh, Trump reminds us that there's a whole strata of, of consciousness, basically, and culture that wants to be seen. And although he doesn't see it this way, I do, reintegrated into a postmodern and post-postmodern worldview that includes the best of all of it. So now in the meantime, my question is, does Donald Trump know what he's doing or is he just doing it? Is he just compulsively playing it out? And I can find evidence on both sides of that argument. In fact, I will offer evidence. The following clip from a television interview with Chris Wallace of Fox News Sunday, it was a week or so ago, where Trump shows, I think, amazing self-awareness and amazing lack of self-awareness. Uh, and um, you can decide what you think. 
This is in response to a question from Chris Wallace where he says, you know, people may like your policies, but almost nobody I talk to likes your tweets and your, your, and your divisiveness. So what are you doing that for? And here's Trump's answer. I think if I was a, you know, more modified, more moderate in that sense, I don't think I would have done half of the things that I was able to get completed. With that being said, other than you have to have a certain ability to fight back, and as you know, people have, you know, they take strong stands on me both ways, you know, love and hate. I'd like to see it a little bit maybe more right down the middle. Uh, But uh, tone is something that is important to me. But a lot of times you can't practice tone because you have people coming at you so hard that if you don't fight back in a somewhat vigorous way, you're not going to win. And we have to win. This country has to win. We have a lot of victories coming. And I think if I if I go too low key, we're not going to have those victories. Okay, so we can hear here that he thinks that he is onto a secret of life. And apparently he is. I mean, I didn't know this. I didn't know that chaos worked, that insults worked like this. And since it does, I can see that he, you know, his, his famous sort of line about, I go to myself for advice. I can see why. <laughs> Who else would advise him to do this? But, you know, somehow he knows. So he is a very stable genius, too, and has a very good brain. Oh, my God. Maybe it's all true. And in a way, I suppose it doesn't matter, because whether or not it's intentional, Donald Trump inhabits, to a degree not seen very often in polite society, what we would call a red or warrior stage of development. And I'll share a chart that I have posted on my dailyevolver.com site under the theory section. And it's based on Ken Wilber's aqua model. You can see that I also have the spiral dynamics stages charted out. And I know a lot of you are listening on a podcast, so I won't make this chart essential. But I do want to just highlight this red warrior stage of development that all of us grow through. It tends to be when we're the terrible twos or threes, it recapitulates a little bit in our teen years, early teen years. But it's the egocentric stage of development where we are, and the healthy side of the street, we're, we're becoming individualized. We're seeing that we're not merged with mother or family. And we assert our uh, individuality and our agency. Now, we could become arrested there, and it starts looking less and less <laughs> appealing as we get into our late teens and 20s and 30s and 70s. Uh, but at any rate, the red warrior culture, uh, the red warrior consciousness, you can see here, it's egocentric, vigilant, aggressive, impulsive, ruthless, courageous, determined, and powerful. And we can make the argument, and I have, uh, particularly in a podcast I did a while back called Trump the Terrible, the boy who would be king, made the case that Trump is, to a degree, again, not often seen in adults, uh, arrested at this stage of development. And there's a couple, you know, 
markers of this stage that you can see in Trump. One of which is the, the, the sort of the basic identity as being a fighter. Red lives to fight. Now, Donald Trump talks a lot about being a winner and loving winning. But there's one thing that I think it's clear that Trump likes even more than winning, and that's just plain old fighting. He fights when he wins. He fights when he loses. He's fought his way up and fought his way down in several boom and bust cycles in his life. And that's just the core of who he is. And this points out the core or radical nature of these worldviews. And um, we, we could sort of look at it ourselves and, 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 and explore our own identity slash worldview. And most of us listening to the Daily Evolver here are solidly, you know, certainly modern orange, but also green postmodern. I mean, we're, we're working our way up into integral on a good day, at least. And one of the great qualities of the green postmodern stage of development is this great emergent sensitivity to the suffering of others, particularly to those who have been victimized or left behind in some way. And you can feel how important that is to you as a you know, green, progressive, postmodern, and how fundamental it is to your nature and how bad you feel about yourself when you violate this ethic of sensitivity. All right, just feel how deep that is. And so to understand red, substitute sensitivity with struggle, with conflict, with fighting, with this idea that if I'm not fighting and struggling and um, and vigilant and aggressive, then I'm not doing my job, that I am not being responsible, really, to myself and to my family. And, um, you know, I often use a a go-to example uh, of a cultural red with this um, saying from the Bedouins, which was pre-Saudi Arabia, the, the nomads that lived in Saudi Arabia, only a hundred years ago, this is one of the things that makes Saudi Arabia so interesting is it's stretched across the spiral of, of development like very few countries are. We can see some of the downsides of that. But the fundamental ethos of the Bedouin is summed up in this line that they would use. And it's, it's this. It's, I, my brother, and my cousin against the stranger. I and my brother against my cousin. I against my brother. So that's it. You know, you're surrounded by conspiracies, scheming enemies, scheming friends. Notice that in Trump. And if you're not struggling, you're feeling unsafe, anxious, depressed. You, again, you feel like you're letting yourself down. So you can see that in Trump, and it's, it's deep in him. The second thing is it's sort of the other side of the coin, and that is this victim mentality, 
we tend to think of red as being aggressive and the ruthless and so forth. There's actually another side of it. There's a confusion that arises, especially when you get into a red adult, that there's a confusion around being a victim and an aggressor, and it's just all wrapped up. And it comes out, in Trump's case, as this Mueller tweet of a few days ago where he tweeted, and this was literally in the middle of the night, he tweets, the inner workings of the Mueller investigation are a total mess. They found no collusion and have gone absolutely nuts. They are screaming and shouting at people, horribly threatening them to come up with the answers they want. They are a disgrace to our nation and don't care how many lives they ruin. These are angry people, including the highly conflicted Bob Mueller, who worked for Obama for eight years. They won't even look at all of the bad acts and crimes of the other side. And in all caps, a total witch hunt like no other in American history, exclamation point. Now that might strike you as an epic and shameless example of psychological projection. But it's only shameless if you don't get that you should be ashamed. And I don't think he does. And um, so you can see that confusion of they're after me. I have to get them before they get me. That, that sort of whole sort of constellation there. One of the things I will also say sort of parenthetically here that I noticed that nobody carried that tweet on the right. I saw it on Morning Joe. I saw that the New York Times carried it, the lefties on the internet, but no conservative media that I saw covered it much, or, or there was the, the eighth or ninth story. And I'm talking Fox, Breitbart, Drudge, um, uh, even the, like Gateway Pundit. They, it wasn't, you know, it, 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 you could feel the worm turn a little bit here after the midterms, that these kinds of tweets aren't going to have the currency that they have had in the past. You know, we get used to things. It's a little boring. All right, so the markers of red. One, identity as a fighter. Two, a victim mentality. Three is aesthetics. And there's a certain aesthetic to red that is unmistakable, and it's a kind of a braggadocious, bigger-than-life, bling, look-at-me, uh, thin-skinned. Um, and, well, you can see it here. I'll, I'll share. Okay, so here's the Trump family in their Trump Tower apartment. You can see the marble pillars, the gilded, the, the, the crystal chandeliers. Here's the living room with all the marble, the painted ceiling like the Sistine Chapel. And here's Trump in his bedroom. Did you think you were going to get away without seeing Trump in his bedroom? Uh, with the mirrors and the gold carvings. And it's just, you know, embarrassing, actually, is what it is. There's an architectural critic who talked about the style of autocrats. And he pointed out that autocrats throughout the world have this style that he calls it Louis the Hotel. And it's this sort of uh, retro, gilded, over-the-top 
what you what you just saw. Okay, so Trump's aesthetic places him solidly at red. So we have his markers of red. We have Trump the fighter, Trump the victim, and Trump the guy with very bad taste, excruciatingly bad taste. And the fourth marker of Trump as red, and this is the most consequential, is that he lives in a pre-truth world. We often talk about Trump in the post-truth era, and post-truth was the word of the year, I think, in 2016. But actually, from a developmental point of view, Trump is pre-truth. He actually read lives in a world alive with apparitions and signs and rumors and conspiracies and palace intrigue and against always scheming enemies, always scheming friends. And if you're not paying attention and you're not getting them before you, they get you, then again, you're not being responsible. And this is the mentality of a world prior to modernity, actually prior to traditionalism where at least the word of God trumped the word of the warlords and the kings. But it read, the warlords and kings rule unconstrained by laws, divisions of power. It's ridiculous. It's a world where might is right and a world of plunder, where the goal is not just to defeat the enemy, but to take their oil. And... It's a world we, where we don't just build a wall between us and Mexico, but we make the Mexicans pay for it. You know, there's that last little shiv in there. And we could actually take heart in a way because in an actual red world back in, you know, 15,000 years ago, Trump would not just want them to pay for it. He'd want them to build it as slaves. So there is progress here. And you know, red actually can grow and there's, there's healthier and unhealthier versions. But anyway, so modernity tries to fight back with objective facts, evidence, a plea for regular order. But it has, in its way, been hobbled by the real post-truth or post-modernity um, world where truth claims are all suspect and feelings are privileged over facts. So we have these three dueling uh, views of truth. This pre-modern, which is, you know, truth is what I say it is, or what God says it is, or what I say God says it is. Uh, the, um, the modern world, which is facts and evidence and logic and so forth. And then the postmodern, where Truth claims are suspect, and we see the world as basically just a endless power struggle. So, yeah, it's interesting to investigate these three conceptions of truth, the pre-modern, modern, and post-modern conceptions. And I have done that on a number of podcasts, particularly one called Pre-Truth, Post-Truth, and Beyond. And the uh, beyond part I particularly like, which is to be to thinking about, you know, what's the integration of these three conceptions that seem to be completely at odds with each other? And is there one? And I explore that. And another one is an interview I did with Ken Wilbur called 
uh, Trump in the Post-Truth World, which is based on his short book that he released about a year ago called Trump in the Post-Truth World, which I advise you to read as well. So anyway, this idea of Trump arrested at red, whether intentionally or not, using the power of this red strata of development is one way that integral thinking can help us understand Trump. Another is to see his um, condition <laughs> as being more a function of type, just the sort of wiring that one comes into the world with. And it, you know, we can still develop, but it's, we're wired the way we're wired. And I got this message from one of my listeners, Troy, who's been thinking about this. And he said, should we think of the president as red or should we think of him as having a personality disorder or both? Specifically, is a personality disorder, for example, narcissistic personality disorder, such as in our president, is that something that arrests development? Or can people continue to move their perspective forward despite this kind of personality disorder? And um, I think there's some argument that it's both. I've talked to a number of developmentalists and uh, integrally informed psychologists, and there's not a lot of agreement about this. And people are, I think, appropriately sort of keeping an open space and open mind to how this all um, sort of relates to the integral maps, if you will. But we can indeed see that there are qualities of Trump's personality that just fit perfectly in a narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis. And, you know, I'm not by any means the only one to talk about that. And, um, and you can see that on a number of different um, sources. But one of the ones that was most impressive to me was an article that I, I first discovered it in an article in The Atlantic called What to Do When Your Child is a Psychopath. And it talked about how experts are dealing with what we used to call psychopathic children, but we don't anymore because it's such a pejorative term. It's now kids who have a callous and um, who have callous and unempathetic traits. And um, uh, the, 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 the interesting thing that I found in this diagnosis and how they're treating these kids is that there's two things. One is that kids with this condition do not respond to disapproval or punishment. And I think of Trump in that way. Disapproval doesn't seem to bother him in the way that it would bother me and bother almost everybody else that I know. It just doesn't register, he doesn't have antenna for it. But, and this is the second quality of these kids, they do respond to praise and rewards. In other words, attention itself is a reward. And a big part of what their MO is, is to just keep themselves at the center of attention. Uh, by often creating chaos. And that is, you know, I mean, he could hardly be a better textbook example of that. There was a, 
interview he did with one of his biog one with one of his biographers where he described himself and he said quote when i look at myself in the first grade and i look at myself now i'm basically the same the temperament is not that different and i think that's probably true and trump was known as a kid who you know would throw the birthday cake he was the chaos kid and of course there can be an upside to this ceos and other leaders who really don't want to be over encumbered with and you know sensitivity to the feelings of other people and uh, so you know it can work all right so however we want to slice and dice donald trump's psyche how does he operationalize it in the world and and in and in his trumpist movement and his make america great again movement and it's pretty much summed up in that line make america great again which is a very traditionalist line it's the harkening back to a golden age where um, things were simpler and where uh, people knew who they were. And there are a lot of people who live there now. And they can be seen as racist and xenophobic and provincial and hillbillies and whatever by more sophisticated people who are, you know, at the more mature end of modern and postmodern, but they don't see themselves that way. And they deeply resent the characterization. You know, one of the ways that we can look at this Make America Great, like when was it great in the way that they're thinking of it? And it's really basically the time before postmodernity came on and achieved this amazing cultural hegemony in the 60s. Now, postmodernity had been around for a hundred plus years with uh, transcendentalists and Mencken and Mark Twain and you know counterculture of the Beatniks even, but in the '60s, the postmodern progressive cultural revolution came online, and you know the media and and, and movies and pretty much all of the popular culture was expressed, was expressing this postmodern worldview. And, you know, I've talked about it endlessly on this show, but that is a nice way, a nice neat way of seeing where MAGA takes us and make America great again takes us. It's you know, very much a, a pre-modern kind of vibe. And you don't have to be fully pre-modern, Cro-Magnon, to have a pre-modern heart. About half the people in this country do. And, um, you know, they can think modern and postmodern. even. They can work. They can be very successful. But where they rest is in a place where things are simple and everybody knows what's going on and heroes are heroes and good is good and bad is bad. And that's really key to this, you know, really understanding and 
feeling into this pre-modern heart. And that is that the world for this, in this worldview, the world is a titanic battle between good and evil. And it, when we get into red, it's a, you know, the battle between my tribe and your tribe, and it's to the death. And we either dominate or we submit. And, you know, so we know what's going on here. And that's very motivating. We can feel some of our red uh, glands pumping here. At the more traditional stage, which is still pre-modern, it's the battle between God and the devil, between capital G good and capital E evil. And you don't do checks and balances there. You don't really want to compromise there. And it's funny, you know, we have this American creed of division of power and so forth. But that's a very modern conception. And when push comes to shove, there's about half of the people who would just as soon follow the great leader somewhere or God. And uh, in the case of Trump, it's not God, but the God people love him because, you know, he's standing against this postmodern cultural hegemony. And this is the one piece of the truth that he has and that he embodies and his people love that the rest of us were missing. And we thought we could just uh, tootle along <laughs> and either forget about these people or they, they'll come along eventually, but not so fast. So this is the, you know, sort of drama of the Trump presidency. And he plays it, uh, again, from this pre-modern position of, it, it's like he instructed his staff early in his presidency, make every day a battle between me and my enemies. Again, checks and balances, forget it. That, that it isn't legitimate. It isn't, it isn't clear. It doesn't come online until somebody has a, a, a big enough view to contain modernity which where the ethos is, I don't want to dominate you anymore. I want to trade with you. I want to be friends with you. You know, at least I want to work with you. And that becomes stable at modernity. But we all have this pre-modern core. And there's, you know, again, about half the people in the country have, it's more than, um, you know, it's, it's where they really want to live. So, Every day is a battle, checks and balances, don't compute, two-party thing isn't legitimized. It's, it's the, you know, us versus them. Um, they get along very well with other people who think that way. So, you know, we talk about how globalists had more in common with their brethren in uh, Zurich than they did their neighbors in Akron. That's true on the other uh, you know, flipping it on its head. Traditionalists here have more in common with traditionalists in Russia uh, than they do with their globalist neighbors in New York and San Francisco. 
So as the world, because you know, it's sort of a perverse consequence of the world becoming more world centric of, you know, the center of gravity of the world in the lower right quadrant, particularly the technological quadrant, um, you know, progressing is that these people find each other and there's new identities for them that are nationalistic and transnationalistic. It's, it's, it's a strange thing, but we see it in Trump in technicolor with the way he deals with other dictators and how much more comfortable he seems to be with them. And, and how, you know, I, I, I love his relationship with um, Kim, Kim Jong-il because it's that, it's sort of the rhetorical equivalent of the aesthetics of Trump Tower, where everything's just bigger than life, you know? So it's inflated in terms of, you know, the rocket man and my button's bigger than his. Yeah, baby. And then, you know, this summer, he, he wrote me beautiful letters. Trump's talking about Kim Jong-il. He wrote me beautiful letters and we fell in love. So these big florid, you know, this is all red. This is bling, you know. So the question is, can a government that has moved beyond red consciousness and created checks and balances and nobody gets to dominate, can that government contain a leader who hasn't grown to that? And that is the question. I think it, we can, but I was wrong before when I was planning my Hillary Clinton uh, victory party, for instance. But even with that said, I think I will venture one more prediction. And that is that we have hit peak Trump, I think. Not least because the House of Representatives is now going to be Democratic in January. And, you know, that will basically stop his agenda or force him, if he indeed has any sort of spiral wizardry in him, to perhaps create a grand bargain with Democrats. Uh, God knows he's not terribly ideological, but the pattern seems to be clear and that he's just a fighter. So he's got to fight. Fighters got to fight. So that will, I think, uh, wear thin. It, I think, is wearing thin. But Trumpism will live on and has to be engaged in a new integration. And even if we just look at Make America Great Again, the fantasy of going back to a world before postmodernity, that is a fantasy shared by millions of people, not just Trump. And it is not going to happen. But there is something that is there. Some deep community, a commitment to hard work, self-responsibility, achievement, a sense of being a citizen among other citizens who's valued and who values and who has a pride of country. Uh, that's going to find its way into a new patriotism. And it's not going to be about a tribe or a nation or a race dominating. And but it has that has to be there. And I, I think. Uh, in, in the last, I guess it was a couple weeks ago when Trump was in Europe and Emmanuel Macron uh, of France did a speech that got a lot of attention because he appeared to call out Trump on Trump's uh, previous statement that he was a nationalist. And he, Macron said, patriotism is the exact opposite of nationalism. 
nationalism is its betrayal by saying that we put our interests first with no regard to others. We erase the very thing a nation holds most precious, that which gives it life and makes it great and is the most important, its moral values. So is Macron's definition of nationalism, we put our own interests first with no regard to others, is that what Trump is actually saying? Um, here again is Trump from the interview with Chris Wallace a week ago. And I do, you know, I put America first and other countries should put themselves first. It's not like we're, we should put and everybody else should be second. Just no. Other countries are proud of their countries and their leaders should put their countries first. But we were putting our country in many cases last. We were more worried about the world than we were worried about the United States. That's not going to happen with me. OK, they're not saying the exact same thing, but. It seems to me that there's some overlap in the Venn diagram. And, 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 and yeah, Trump's more uh, pursuing interests. Uh, Macron's more pursuing values. But the integration of that is where we pursue our interests within a structure of moral values that is basically peaceful and respectful. You know, once you get that going, you're... You know, most of the horrors of humanity are, are left behind once you get peaceful and respectful. So, you know, I think there's a new patriotism that can be knitted out of these two streams. And yes, the old guard nationalists are going to have to drop their ethnocentric um, triumphalism. And there's a project for the left, too, in creating this new patriotism. And that is that the left has to embrace patriotism. As well as globalism, as well as multiculturalism, there has to be a sense of what it is to be an American and a pride in that. And that's findable. That's findable for the left. And I sense that a lot of people on the left know that they need to find it, honestly. So I think there's movement here, people. And um, I am just delighted to be able to point to it, I think, and share it with you and hear back from you. So please do respond. If so moved, you can reach me at jeff at dailyevolver.com, or you can go to my website, dailyevolver.com, and go to the Connect tab, and there's a button there, and you can leave me a voicemail, or you can actually email me a voicemail. And I read and listen to everything. I don't respond as much as I used to, and I, I feel terrible about myself. But I, I'm very inspired and often use um, your comments in these episodes. Okay, folks, thanks again for listening, and see you next time on The Daily Evolver. Bye.